Welcome to Writer's Radio, the global internet station that broadcasts the beautiful, fanciful, and engaging work of talented writers from our neighborhood and yours. I'm Ingrid Rose, and I'm your host for today's program, Words Can Kill. The stories you're about to hear in the third program of our series, Whiteness is Not an Ancestor, Essays on Life and Lineage by White Women, edited by Lisa Iverson, are from writer Sonia Lee, born in Kentucky and now living in the Canadian Rockies, and Reiki master Sabina Olsen, born in Munich, Germany, and now living on a small farm in Langley, B.C. After her grandmother's death, Sonia Lee learns that her then young and newlywed Kentucky grandparents were present when a young black man, Rainy Bethia, was hanged for the alleged rape of a white woman. It was the last public execution of a black man. The story of Rainy Bethia came to me through my family. I was 42 and raising two teenagers when I flew on my own from Seattle to my paternal grandmother's funeral in Owensboro, Kentucky. Both the maternal and paternal sides of my family are Kentuckians, nearly all of them farmers, and I am the sixth generation to be born in that state. The day of the memorial service for Francis Margaret Moran Ralph after mass and a community meal at the parish hall, a family friend handed me a sheaf of papers. I didn't look at the pages until I was on the plane home, and there in the plastic-covered booklet, an oral history recently taken by a neighbor entitled A Celebration of Francis Ralph was confirmation of my grandmother and grandfather's presence at the Bethia hanging, along with her fateful words. Until this moment, I also had never heard of Rainy Bethia, nor the last public execution in America, nor of Grandma and Granddad attending the hanging just one week after the wedding, when he was 18 years old and she was 19. When I first read Grandma's words, I was repelled and saddened by her dehumanization of Bethia, but it was her lies that were also mawkish, disgusting, in the interview, my grandmother recalled the jewelry stolen from Edwards' home and painted herself as the one who tipped off the police to the missing rings and brooch. The trial transcripts indicated that the police already knew where the jewelry was to be found on a supposed confession from Bethia himself. That oral history simply footnoted that Mrs. Ralph's recollection was different from the police report. Bloodlines, a legal lynching and a family's reckoning. 
There's a content warning for racist descriptions of racial violence in this essay. Here's a story that I never knew until my grandmother died. In the summer of 1936, in Owensboro, Kentucky, Rainey Bethia, a young black man, was jailed for the rape and murder of an elderly white woman and then tried by an all-white, all-male jury that took four and a half minutes to find him guilty. He was hanged near the banks of the Ohio River. Bethia's would become the last public execution in America. According to news reports and historical photographs, the 20,000 whites in attendance made a brutal carnival of the observation of his death. Two of those 20,000 were my grandparents, teenage newlyweds, Cheryl and Francis Ralph. That day also included a lady sheriff who had inherited the job after her husband died, a volunteer hangman who arrived drunk, and hundreds of white journalists from across America who broadcast their versions of the story. Nearly all of them chose not to explore whether the case had been just. White historians and legal scholars did not call the killing a lynching. Legal definitions, created by the same white-dominant system that put to death thousands of falsely accused and unjustly tried black people, named this hanging a public execution, a government-sanctioned observation of Bethia's death. Bethia wasn't prosecuted for killing Leisha Edwards, only for her rape. Murder convictions meant death by the electric chair inside the state prison, but Kentucky law mandated that rape be punished by a public hanging in the county of the crime. To ensure that Bethia's death would be as unrestricted, cruel, and degrading as possible, Herman Burkhead, the prosecuting attorney for the Commonwealth of Kentucky, argued that the murder charges be dropped. By the time the camera stopped clicking and the newsmen flew home, Kentucky had been humiliated in the national press. The onlookers' violence both disputed and affirmed in accounts of this day. The state soon ended hangings in town squares, a practice that affected mostly black Americans. Kentucky's governor, A.B. Happy Chandler, signed a bill repealing the requirement that death sentences for the crime of rape be conducted by hanging. Chandler later expressed regret at having approved the repeal, claiming our streets are no longer safe. Chandler was not speaking of Bethia's streets. Rainy Bethia was an orphan, barely out of his teens and with few ties to the community, having moved to Owensboro just a few years earlier. He had been in trouble with the law twice, once for drunken disorderly charges and once for stealing a purse, a crime which sent him to the Kentucky State Penitentiary in Eddyville on a year-long sentence. Indeed, it could be said that Bethia was charged with Edward's rape because the police were searching for a black man with a prison record. Upon Bethia's arraignment for the Edwards crimes, sheriffs drove him to the Jefferson County Jail in Louisville. They reported that Bethia suddenly confessed en route, one of five such confessions taken by white officers of the police and prison system. The Owensboro newspaper reported that Bethia's safe departure was affected through subterfuge. 
The local press and citizens had one thing in common with the judge, police, and lawyers. Everyone was certain of Bathia's guilt. No one cared that the confessions came without counsel. Miranda rights were 40 years away. There were many injustices in due process, including taking a confession from Bathia when he was inebriated, the absence of lawyers throughout his questioning, using fingerprints as evidence when he was employed to clean the victim's room, and the assignment of a team of white trial lawyers who mounted no defense. The prosecution called 21 witnesses with not one cross-examination from Bathia's attorneys. The defense did not call any witnesses, nor did the defense address the jury. The entire trial lasted just over two hours. Bathia's lawyers failed to present a motion for a new trial, and this omission cost Bathia his right to appeal to the Kentucky Court of Appeals. From the Chicago Defender to the NAACP, the black media repeatedly insisted that the evidence against Bathia was strikingly flimsy. Contrary to reports in the white papers, black newspapers claimed that he denied his guilt. After Bethia's conviction, African-American attorneys from Louisville came to his defense, and the NAACP intervened on his behalf. The team of five new attorneys stated that the verdict was against the evidence and the law, that the defendant was denied his constitutional rights, that Bethia's counsel had been absent in spirit, that the confessions were a result of intimidation, that the instructions to the jury were incorrect, and that there was no fair trial. Their advocacy came after Bathia's trial, though, and a judge denied their appeal, saying it was sent seven days too late. Several white readers of my story said that they wanted to know if Bathia was innocent or guilty. That's beside the point. George C. Wright, in Racial Violence in Kentucky, 1865 to 1940, lynchings, mob rule, and legal lynchings, reports that from Reconstruction to the mid-20th century, Kentuckians lynched 353 people, and 80% of those put to death for rapes were African-American. Carrie Pizzullo, author and history professor at Colorado State University, says, quote, White authorities in the American South had a well-documented history of labeling African-American men as sexual predators and then meeting out brutal legal and extra-legal punishment for alleged crimes, often at the end of the noose. In that sense, the hanging of a young black man for the rape of a white woman was perversely ordinary." A white man would not have been put to death on the gallows, and a massive white mob would not have turned out even if he were. Arthur Raper, the author of The Tragedy of Lynching from 1933, notes that, quote, in the efforts to prevent a lynching, peace officers and leading citizens often make promises which virtually preclude impartial court procedure. The presence of a mob defeats the end of impartial justice, either by lynching the accused or by forcing the courts to summary and perhaps unjust convictions. Unquote. 
As I reviewed the questionable evidence and the manner with which it was obtained, one thing was clear. No white man would have been convicted on this evidence in the first place. The job of lynching is to utilize terror to enforce social codes, no matter if it happens in 1936 with the legal lynching of Rainy Bethia or in 2020 with the street lynching of Ahmad Arbery. I believe Bethia was hanged because he was a target of state violence and he was a focus of a white society that defined his body as an innate threat. Far too ordinary were Kentuckians using lynchings, including legal ones, as a method of codifying racial subordination and enforcing through violence while the nation looked the other way. Devastatingly ordinary, vote suppression, legal discrimination, extra-legal terror, gerrymandered districts, and white conservative senatorial dominance, all of which still seek today to maintain control of people of color. Indeed, most modern executions share a historical affinity with slavery. They mostly occur in the South, where the death penalty is part of our origin story. You've just been listening to Sonia Lee read from Bloodlines, A Legal Lynching and a Family's Reckoning, one of 12 essays on life and lineage by white women in Whiteness is Not an Ancestor. Sabina Olsen's story starts in Germany, in Munich, the city where Hitler rose to power in the 30s and used othering to spread fear and hate. Sabina's essay was developed from an interview with Lisa Iverson. It's always running in the background for me that Hitler lived in and loved Munich. He moved there in 1920 and was there for a long time. That's where he joined the party. So many of his speeches he held there between 1920 and 1930. One of the worst speeches was one of the last ones he gave there. There were 6,000 people in attendance and the party went from 12 to 107 seats in the 1930 election. Prior to then, in 1923, Hitler and about 2,000 Nazis marched and protested down central streets in Munich, trying to overthrow the government. This was called the Beer Hall Putsch. Several people died or were arrested and convicted. Hitler was jailed and convicted of treason, but was released after about nine months. I love my hometown, and it has always been a source of pain for me that Hitler got his start there. It helps to focus on the people who fought back. 
When I think about Munich, what's really in my bones is the Nazi resistance movement led by students called the White Rose. The most prominent members of this group were Sophie and Hans Scholl, sister and brother. This was a non-violent resistance group of young people. They mostly used graffiti and brochures. The group had been in existence for about nine months when Sophie, Hans and Christoph Probst were all executed by guillotine. I read a story recently about a young Jewish family living in Holland. The neighbors took them in during the war. The dad lived in the attic for four years. The mom had false papers and could live openly. They trained the little four-year-old boy not to call his dad daddy and to instead call him uncle. There were many people who did what these neighbors did, who took action in opposition to the betrayal of Jewish people. Why did so many others betray the Jews? What was there to gain from doing so? When asked, why was it not possible to say, I don't know, when questions about their neighbor's Jewish identity? It bothers me a lot. They must have felt threatened. The military force had such a presence. Fear of death and torture contributed to betrayal of Jewish people. You and I have talked about the role of fear, the biology of it, how contagious it is, and how it can be manipulated. Group dynamics, they seem both mysterious and repeatable. How authoritarian leaders can arise from the group as if to say, I'll take care of you, when dynamics of fear and messages around otherness are in charge. My family tells me now that it's more the former East Germans with a lot of trouble, being very, very racist. Lots of trouble going to the far right. I don't get it. They were the ones who were so oppressed. They were the ones who had nothing. The young ones have become much more conservative, right-wing, racist, unfortunately. That's the generation that didn't experience it, the communist years. I went to East Germany twice with my mom, once when I was four and then when I was eight. My mom had a sister living there. She couldn't get out. They had nothing. And that's another feeling at the border, sitting in the train, and all the soldiers come in and open and check your luggage. Talk about scary. That uniform presence and no food, I remember how awful their food was. The rise of neo-Nazi presence today, in former East Germany and elsewhere, is scary to me. And it's also very sad because it was my hope that we had learned our lesson after the Second World War, that all people are the same. Not one race is better or worse. We are all human. The neo-Nazis, I don't know where they come from. They seemingly have a good life, not much lacking. And what is it? Looking back at the history and how bad it was, how frightening, oppressive, and how inhumane, to want that back? And to say, hey, we're not finished? We have to be finished. And to me, I think that governments should shut them down. I know there's freedom of speech, there has to be. But we have some laws in Canada where you can't say just anything you please. Hate speech is not allowed. It is against the law, 
and a prosecutable offense. I think it's still allowed in your country. You can't have hate speech in Germany either. There is no way. But what people say privately, you can't control. Even in the States, what do they know about Hitler, really? They weren't there, those young people and those not so young, who today are like neo-Nazis. And I bet they don't even know the history. They just think it's great to oppress someone else. For the most part, people put their head down during the war, not wanting to be seen. They were just in survival mode. You can survive if you don't get noticed. It's another reason why it's so important to not allow hate speech. This is the most important thing. That's how it starts, and it goes from bad to worse. It cannot be condoned. We must not condone hate speech worldwide. We must be better. We must realize that we're all connected. In the US, there's growing hate speech. That's how it starts. A little bit, a little bit more. It gets bolder and bolder. And before you know it, there's a monster you can't control. Today's social media platforms make it even more possible for these messages to be spread. Laws around the world are starting to be passed requiring social media companies to take down hate speech content. You've just been listening to Sabina Olsen read from It Cannot Be Condoned, Whiteness and the Legacy of War, one of 12 romances on life and lineage by white women. In the book, Whiteness is Not an Ancestor. You have been listening to Writers Radio, a non-commercial collaborative project which presents talented writers reading their own work. These stories, essays, and conversations revisit the long tradition of oral storytelling that connects us to the inspiration behind the words. Be sure to check the website, writersradio.ca, to subscribe to our free notifications list. It's also a way of letting the writers know you are there and appreciating their creative work. Thanks for listening.